for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Last week I was chatting with Omar Mamad, a neuroscientist and genetic epilepsy researcher specialising in the rare epilepsy called CDKL5. But this week on the programme we are talking to neuroscientist Dr Gareth Morris. We're talking about how he got into epilepsy research and his research into the most common form of epilepsy of all, temporal lobe epilepsy. This type of epilepsy is more than a little close to my heart as temporal lobe epilepsy is a diagnosis that you will find on my own personal health record. Now, if you're new to the channel, do make sure that you subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. This is a weekly podcast slash video. Do not go anywhere. Stay with us. Welcome to the podcast, Gareth. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to chat to you. Please tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up getting into epilepsy research. Originally, I'm from the UK, from a town called Telford in Shropshire. I guess my scientific background began at university when I was studying biomedical science at the University of Birmingham. As part of that, you know, neuroscience was one of the, um, the main parts of the course and just something that I really enjoyed doing. It really kind of just clicked for me, like it, it all made sense to me. And so as part of that course, I did a lab placement within a neuroscience lab, which just so happened to be an epilepsy lab. It's not something that I chose to do in the first place. It's something that I, you know, I didn't know a lot about epilepsy. I just kind of fell into that lab. Um, I was lucky enough to have some very supportive and inspirational supervisors in um, John Jeffries and Andy Powell. Yeah, I just kind of fell in love with the the research process and the, the community and community they're like the scientific community or at, at first, you know, as a relatively junior person, it, it, you start off, you're kind of exposed to the scientific community. But what, what I've come to realize, I mean, my experiences in the epilepsy community, but I'm sure it's like this in, in other fields as well, is, you know, there is this genuine coming together of people with different perspectives and different viewpoints. So, for example, within, within epilepsy, you have researchers like myself working away in labs, trying to find new treatments and whatever for for epilepsy we have you know um advocacy groups and people with epilepsy such as yourself who bring hugely hugely important stories and viewpoints and experiences of how epilepsy affects real people and how um our work as scientists can be of benefit to you guys and you, you have clinicians who obviously they, they bring in a much more clinical viewpoint, which is important for everybody to hear. And really 
important and exciting um, charity groups such as guys like Epilepsy Research UK, who, you know, not only do they fund ongoing research, but they, um, through things like their blog and their website, they really um, try to inform and educate people about research into epilepsy. And so this is what I mean by the sense of community. You have all these different kinds of people with different viewpoints and everybody kind of wants to work together towards this common goal of developing new treatments and new ways to, to help people that have epilepsy. I just think that that's fantastic. There's no real kind of competitiveness, let's say. Nobody's getting in each other's way, treading on each other's toes. Everybody just works together towards the same goal. I think that's really such a nice thing. Give us an example of some work that you've done and why there was a need for that research specifically. I guess one of the things that I'm most proud of recently is a paper that we published earlier this year in a, an American science journal called PNAS. So, so the outcome was to identify three new molecules which are very good at treating and stopping seizures in epilepsy. And one of the nice things about that piece of research is that um, following on from conversations with, with people like yourself, Tori, we were aware that we should also go and look at the effect of our treatments, our new molecules on things like learning and memory, as that's one of the sort of horrible, I guess, side effects that can come from anti-seizure medications. And so what's nice about this piece of work is that we took into account what you guys are telling us. Um, we really found so, some new molecules that we hope one day will be very useful to you. Does that kind of answer your original question? I started waffling a bit and I can't quite remember <laughs> It's all right. It's all, all, all very interesting stuff. Um, I feel like we could sort of, we could totally go on forever because yeah, there definitely. are so many projects going on um, both locally and internationally. Um, and it's really encouraging. You know, we know that um, that we are not forgotten. A slot with epilepsy. Can you tell me how you fund your work? I think this is something that is rarely known about unless one is in research. And how much of your time does it take up? How much of a palaver is it? Yeah, it, it can be <laughs> a pretty big palaver um, at times. So for myself right now, I'm kind of in, I guess, an early intermediate career position. Um, and so, so, so I'll try to give an overview of the different career stages. So, so right at the start of, of a scientific academic career, you're typically studying for a PhD. And usually you will apply to a professor to work with them. And that professor will have gained funding from um, a research organization. And we'll, we'll go on to that in a second. So, so at the start of your career, somebody else has basically got the funding for you. You apply to them and convince them you're a good candidate and, you know, they pay your salary and your lab fees and whatever. The stage that I'm at now is where I'm starting to have to take a bit more responsibility for my own funding. So right now I'm funded by um, a Marie Curie fellowship from 
the European Union's Horizons 2020 program. And that's something that, you know, it, it's quite competitive and you have to write a fairly detailed application to the European Union describing, you know, who you are, your CV, your achievements, what you want to do. You're selling yourself and you're selling your ideas to them and hopefully they like it and you're fortunate enough that they will fund your work. So that is how my salary is currently paid. I essentially, you know, applied for money for my own salary and a bit of extra money to fund. I mean, the intention was to fund, you know, a bit of travel to conferences. Obviously that isn't happening right now. (laughs) Um, And then a bit of money for, you know, lab work and, and so on. When you get to that later career stage, so those professors we were just talking about, you would typically yourself, your salary would be paid by like a university or something who have given you a permanent position. Um, But what you need to do is then bring in what's called project grants to pay the people in your team. So you become on the other side of that picture we talked about at the start, and you have to then spend your time writing up your ideas, applying for grants to bring in, to pay people to come into your team and also to pay for like lab fees, lab equipment, lab consumables and so on. And when you said, you know, palaver sometimes maybe is the word because it seems to me, you know, I'm not there yet, so I can't speak from experience, but it seems to me that as you get more and more senior, you spend more and more time writing these grants to try to bring in the next funding as it were when you know that maybe sometimes can distract attention away from um, the ongoing research Um, you know the model works because you have a bunch of fantastic phd and postdoc researchers actually doing the lab work but you know as a, a professor maybe it's not ideal for you to be spending all your time applying for grants, some of which you know will not be successful. So it's challenging for sure. Do you know what? It reminds me of some of the tasks of a business owner, really, that you have to do. And it seems just strange, I think, from for some people from an outsider's perspective that you do all that studying, you've, you know, you've done your PhD and you continue to learn more and more about research, about neuroscience and about technology and, and everything that goes with uh, with it and then you're doing your uh admin and stuff and hiring people and, and all yeah, that yeah 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 in it's, addition um so it just seems a bit a bit sort of strange and it's makes- it's funny like i think about all of the different things that you have to do as a scientific researcher and it's such a multi-talented job because you know in the first instance, you obviously have to do the scientific research, right? But then right. you have to be able to communicate and talk about your research to both people in the field and outside of the field that might not have so much expertise. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be a strong communicator, a good writer. You have to be able to sell yourself. I was thinking the other day, sometimes I feel like a graphic designer because when you're writing these papers, you spend so much time making figures just to show graphically show your findings. That in itself is another skill. Or for example, 
you know, the, the Epilepsy in English project, which we'll go on to, to talk about, hopefully, um, I'm doubling up as a web designer or something. And, you know, there are so many different skills that come in beyond what people might think of as a lab scientist. And one of the things we chatted about when, when we did the live video chat was creativity, a huge thing that people don't necessarily think of. The point that I wanted to make on the video that slipped my mind <laughs> over the last I mean, I don't want to put exact numbers on this, but, you know, let's say the last 20 years or so, please don't quote these numbers because, you know, that, that I might be getting these slightly wrong. But, you know, we've discovered and developed around 20 anti-seizure drugs. Mm. And that in recent years, I think, has that progress has slowed down. And despite what is good success in finding these new drugs and and treatments, it's very important. Regardless of that, there are still 30% of people with temporal lobe epilepsy who don't achieve seizure freedom from Mm. the drugs that we have available. And that is where people need to come in with an element of creativity, I would say, and think outside the box and try new and maybe slightly wacky whatever ways to stop these seizures that are currently resistant to available drugs and also you know as as we've touched on maybe don't have the same horrible adverse effects that can be associated with anti-seizure drugs for some people going on from this thinking outside of the box thing it's not even just about trying to control or stop people's seizures but actually Thinking about things at an earlier stage, how can we prevent a person from developing epilepsy? That's a very difficult research question. You yeah. know, if, if there is a significant proportion of, of epilepsies are acquired, by which we mean they are caused by some Indeed, sort of yeah. infection or injury or something like that. Yeah. You know, you're not born with it necessarily. Maybe yeah. you're born with like um, predisposition, I guess is the word, but there is some sort of event which causes the brain to develop epilepsy. Talking about genetic ones, I guess. So rather than somebody developing epilepsy as a result of injury, they can actually literally be born with epilepsy. And I actually spoke to somebody recently who told me, and I didn't know about this before, that actually fetuses, babies before they're born can have seizures in in their mum's tummy. I mean, that's where there's some important distinctions, right? Because we often talk about epilepsy as like a coverall term for various disorders where people experience spontaneous seizures. And there are actually, you know, there are so many different types of epilepsy. So as you mentioned, we have these um, relatively rare genetic epilepsies where there is some kind of um, alteration in a person's DNA, and it's always something very small, which actually causes them to have, directly causes them to have seizures. And so those are the genetic epilepsies. And actually, so I guess those are not quite the ones that I was referring to. Then you have something like the acquired epilepsies, where, as I was saying, you know, there's some kind of event, like an injury, an infection, causes the brain to change in some way that means it starts to have seizures. 
And what I was saying is that, I guess as a kind of in-between, you could have somebody whose genetics don't necessarily directly cause them to have epilepsy, but might make them a bit more susceptible right. to injury or something that causes them to acquire it, if you, if you see what I mean. So what I was saying there is we can capture quite well in the lab. So the, the process is called epileptogenesis, right? Between this, this injury, this event, and the actual development of full-on epilepsy, there is a kind of a period. And that is a period in which we would like to be able to, to intervene and yeah. to, to stop whatever processes are going on. But it, it's such a complex con condition because within that epileptogenesis, there are so many things going on in the brain, some of which we understand better than others. It, it's obviously a, a complex thing to try to interfere with. Yeah, uh, sometimes I would certainly welcome interference, but there's a, <laughs> you can have good interference and bad interference. And that's why research is so important. So give us a cool fact about something that you've discovered in your research um, in one of your studies. And then tell me about how you are communicating this type of information to people like myself, to pe people with epilepsy, to carers and to the wider public. Oh, if I'm just going to pick out one thing. Um, <laughs> you can give us two things. Give us two things. Or no, pick up I mean, one study and with like some cool information from that. Yeah, study. if I, I guess what one thing that was really cool. So I was working with a guy called um, Gabriele Lignani, who you know I know you've spoken to him. He's going on a podcast too. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really great guy, good friend, and um, we were doing our postdocs together. In you know, he's he's a little bit more senior than I am, but we were both postdocing at the same time um, in Queen Square in London in the lab of Stephanie George. He's full of ideas as a scientist, and we together came up with a new kind of twist on a research technique, let's say. So we both use this technique called electrophysiology, where you are recording electrical signals from brain cells and seeing what they do in epilepsy and how we might be able to change those signals to hopefully stop epilepsy from happening, if you see what I mean. And um, we came up with a slightly different twist whereby we could simulate really, really realistic epileptic signals in like one brain cell in a dish. It may not sound like much, um, but what that meant was we could kind of pretend like that cell was part of a whole brain which was having a seizure and then we could apply some drugs to that cell and see what the drugs would do if we then repeat the exact same seizure you know you'll know yourself that no two seizures will ever be exactly the same mm. um, and that makes it kind of challenging scientifically to see exactly what drugs are doing on a kind of specific cellular level seriously brains could you give us some sort of consistency yeah exactly right what you like to do from a scientific point of view i guess is record the activity from one seizure apply a drug and then repeat the exact same seizure and see what changed when you added the drug right and yeah. we essentially created a way that we could do that. And what we learned from that that I thought was pretty cool is we found a new effect of the drug carbamazepine, which is 
you know, mm-hmm. a fairly commonly used anti-seizure yeah. drug. And one of the interesting things with carbamazepine is that in some cases it can actually be counterproductive and make epilepsy worse. Using this new technique that we had come up with, we actually managed to show what we think might be a previously unknown mechanism that can actually make carbamazepine sometimes make seizures or make epilepsy a little bit worse. So so that was something that I just thought was really cool because I guess it's a drug that's been used for so long and we yeah. knew that there were challenges for some people in using it and we kind of found out one of the reasons why. I thought that was really nice. I always think one of the really cool things about research is finding out things that you didn't intend to find out. It's like a curveball sometimes, isn't it? And, and like, I guess that can, from the outside, be, oh my goodness, that's really, really annoying. That wasn't what the information that we were after. But it doesn't mean that you don't find out what you are trying to find out. It just means you find out other stuff in addition. And that's a really cool yeah. thing about scientific research. You know, on that note, you have to be really open to different interpretations of what you right. find. We've spoken before about confirmation bias. For anybody that doesn't know, confirmation bias is essentially where you add value to evidence which supports your way of thinking and shows what you want it to show. And you kind of slightly ignore evidence that goes against what you think and what you want to show. So that's a confirmation bias. You are biased towards the things that confirm what, what you want to show. And we have to be very wary of that. And we have to always try to look as objectively as possible about all of the data and the evidence that we produce and see how that that fits in. And I mean, I could give you an example of that in that the treatments that we developed this year that I mentioned at the start, one of the experiments that we wanted to do was to record from individual brain cells treated with these molecules. I did these experiments myself, right? And what I assumed to start with was if these molecules are able to reduce seizures, they will in some way, I don't know exactly what, but they will in some way reduce the activity of like the individual brain cells within the kind of network of cells that is causing seizures. And They'll change the behavior of the neurons, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. What was really kind of weird and surprising to me is that these these molecules we're using, they can stop seizures without seemingly changing the behavior of the neurons involved in the seizures. And, you know, there's a few, we do have a few potential explanations for why that might be. But all this to say, you know, my original idea was that the treatments would change the behavior of the neurons. That did not happen. But then if you go away, you remove yourself from your original thinking, we actually realized that that's probably a good thing, right? Because you don't want to kind of change the fundamental ways that the brain is working too much, because I I guess that's probably one of the reasons why some anti-seizure drugs can have such nasty adverse effects. And so we actually think that that might be 
a very promising property of the the new treatments that we're trying to come up with. Do you know what you're just making me think of? Actually, uh, this is um, another of our podcasts. Um, we we do research and then we develop drugs over a long period of time that appear not to have any side effects, and then yeah. we find out twenty thirty years down the line, for instance, sodium valproate. Mm. that it has been impacting, in that case, a significant minority of um, children that are born to mums who take it. What do you think about that? It's such a hard question to answer because, you know, obviously before any new treatment can ever be used at like any large scale in people with epilepsy, it has to go through, you know, hugely rigorous pre-clinical testing first of all just to identify the molecule to show that it works that it stops seizures to show that it 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 doesn't seem to be harmful and and that's kind of the stage that we're, we're at now with the things i was talking about before and then you have to go through a whole series of very formally prescribed safety profiling studies to show that you know the molecules are not toxic they're not dangerous in any way following on from that there's the whole series of clinical trials which and again i'm I'm not a clinical trials expert so don't quote me on on the details of this but it would be something that that starts off in a very small number of people and is gradually scaled up until it can be used clinically and so obviously anything that we would produce would go through incredibly rigorous safety profiling. But, you know, of course, if you're, you're mentioning something like where you can have problems that only come to light down the line in 40 years, I mean, it's something that we, we may just not be able to predict. I don't know. I guess everything that we consume as a species, everything that we put in our mouths, there's always some sort of risk, right? I guess so. And we can only take the information accessible to us at the time and then make a judgment call at that point yeah Um, i don't think you can ever know the long-term effects of things for sure and that's why you know as scientists as well it's very important that we are continuously updating the evidence that we have available to us and we are willing to change our thinking based on new and emerging evidence right like yeah. You know, if something comes out in 10 years to say that actually maybe the treatment we're using in the long term is not as great as we thought, we have to be open to that and we have to adapt. And I think that sort of goes with just bettering also communication between scientists, researchers and us lot so that we can all ask each other questions, make suggestions and stuff like that. And, you know, if we've got an open, if we're each side is like an open book, then I think there's less to be scared of as well. Like, yeah, definitely, definitely. Worrying each other and offending each other and just make people aware of risks and and that we can just do what is best for a person or for ourselves with the information present at the time. Can you tell us about epilepsy in English? Um, yeah. This is the important bit, really. So tell us yeah, about epilepsy in English. What made you start it? Um, how do things work? What's the purpose and what's the future for it? Tell us all about it. Yeah, sure. So um, for anybody that's not seen it, um, Epilepsy in English is a 
website, which um, was started by myself and a colleague, Christina Reshka. And really the, the goal of it is to bring ongoing and cutting edge and new progress in epilepsy research to the general public in a way that is accessible to to everybody. So, you know, we avoid technical lingo, any complicated specialist language. We, we try not to assume any prior knowledge of how the brain works or how epilepsy works. Um, and, we, you know, we, we hope that... Um, the, the articles that we write can be accessible to anybody that wants to know about epilepsy research without necessarily having the expertise. And we hope that, you know, they can be understandable without being oversimplified and losing the message that the research is trying to, to show. So to describe, you know, how this started, the motivation, we were at a science communication event here in Dublin and there was a very inspirational speaker called Mark Pollock. And this guy, he, when he was growing up, he was a very accomplished rower. And I believe was close to representing Ireland on a national level, I think in the Olympic Games. And he, at some point in his life, had an accident, which left him paralyzed through, I think, a spinal cord injury. And Later in life, I, I believe, again, in a kind of a separate story, he also lost his vision. And so what was really inspirational is that he never let any of these things set him back. And what he was saying at this event was he was really driven to research his own condition and to understand his own condition and understand the progress that was being made towards treating his condition. But what he said to us as an audience of, of scientists mainly is that if we want people to read our work and understand our work and appreciate our work, we have to write in a way that it can be understood because the way we write scientific papers for a scientific audience is very technical and very complicated. And it has to be like this so that other people can try to reproduce our work and repeat what we've done and verify the progress that we've made. But that's not very helpful for somebody that wants to sit at home and, you know, search the internet to better understand the progress that is, is being made towards understanding and towards treating the condition that they might have or you know as, as you brought up before Tori you know family members might want to also um, read up on those kind of things so that was really the motivation because what we realized is that that is also a problem in the epilepsy field and as far as we were aware at the time there wasn't really any other kind of service or organization or platform where research papers were being explained in an accessible way. There's loads of great resources on, you know, what actually is epilepsy. Um, epilepsy Sparks does a fantastic job of sharing people's stories and sharing 
the human side of epilepsy, which is incredibly important for, for us guys to see. Um, organizations like Epilepsy Research UK, as an example, do a great job of um, describing the research process and, you know, issues around research and how it's performed. But we didn't see anyone that is actually saying, look, here is the research that is being done. This is what it means for you guys and this is what where it might go in the future that kind of thing so so that's our motivation to try to fill what we saw as a little niche there well it's a really really good page well we found each other or you found i can't remember which way around it was yeah i can't remember either and when i look at looked at it i was well i don't know if it's right or not but i was thought oh it's quite a good logo and i started reading it and i love the pictures god i'm such a I, I, I just love the pictures you provide on it too um and then you truly notice after trying to and i'm, I'm still trying to learn the lingo of neurology and neuroscience and i'm mm -hmm. sure i will never finish doing that um but comparing it to papers you were like almost providing the same information but in layman's terms and that's what mm -hmm. we really need and and actually, it was kind of that as well, which got me thinking more and more about the epilepsy glossary and epilepsy sparks. We all need to be speaking to people in the language that we're all kind of used to. And I think I said in yeah. our video call that learning the language used by scientists and, and medical professionals, it reminds me of attempting to learn French at school. It is so different. And it's like a acronym competition as well. It feels like sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it makes people feel even more cut off. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit exclusive, I guess, if, if yeah, things are written in a, a certain way that just can't be can't be accessed by certain groups of people. And that, that's yeah. what we're all about with epilepsy in English is being accessible to everybody, right? What do you get from your work and what keeps you going day to day? I, I have said that I think it's a very multifaceted job in ways that aren't necessarily obvious to people that aren't doing this job. But that I think that's one of the things I love, that there's a bit of variety. And whilst it, in any scientific experiment, there is a lot of repetition, you know, day to day, you can be doing completely different things like this morning I was in the lab running some experiments there to extract kind of genetic material from some samples um, tomorrow I will go up to the hospital to um, work with some some human brain samples which is is very exciting I really enjoy that sense of variety and having that freedom and autonomy to you know use all of these different research techniques and resources and ideas to try to to piece together a solution to to a problem of trying to find new epilepsy treatments and develop new techniques as well i think because like you were talking about uh what you and gabrielle did you know so yeah of course of course like you know, that, that's all really important progress as well. You know, if, if people can see the value in the techniques that you develop, they can apply them to, to other questions. And it's, you know, one of the things you see a lot these days in, in the epilepsy field and in other fields is about gene therapy. And mm -hmm. we, we have a nice post explaining that, what, what, what gene therapy is on epilepsy in English. Gene therapy and gene editing, they are probably some of the techniques of the future in terms of 
biomedicine. They in themselves originally are technical advances, new techniques, and then other people will take those techniques and say, hey, why don't we do this with it? And all adds up to progress. Your work, as well as being creative and exciting, because you're in contact with us a lot as patients and families, you know that you're giving us hope. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's one of the fantastic things to hear those stories from, from people like yourself. And, you know, on the one hand, to really understand how epilepsy affects people beyond just seizures. It's something that we don't always necessarily think about as much as we should. Um, and then as well, when people come back to us and say they're really excited about what we're doing and they'd love to see how it goes and, you know, it gives them hope that it may be in, you know, the hopefully not too distant future, we will have new treatments and new ideas. Like it, it's, you know, provides a big drive and it's just really inspirational for us. Benefits both parties, I think. So what do you see happening potentially in the next like five to 10 years in epilepsy research? I talked earlier about the kind of relatively slow recent progress in, in developing new anti-seizure medications. And, you know, despite the good success that we we have had, there are still 30% or so of people with TLE that that don't necessarily have great treatments. And so what I think that fact has motivated a lot of researchers in the last few years to try to really come up with creative and novel ways to treat temporal lobe epilepsy. And I think we will start to see a lot of those come to fruition. So, you know, Gabriella that we mentioned earlier and um, the guys over at, at Queen Square in London, they work a lot on gene therapies, for example. And Love I Queen think, Square, where I'm registered, yeah. literally saved my life, these guys. Yeah, yeah, I think gene therapies will, will be a huge thing that we'll see a lot more of. What we're working on here in the Future Neuro Research Centre predominantly is molecules called microRNAs. Yeah. And you know, we're seeing more and more that by manipulating these molecules, we can very powerfully stop seizures and they seem to be very safe. So hopefully we will see those come through a lot more. And I think that's it. And another thing I would mention is in the last five years, maybe just to pick a ballpark figure, there's been a bit of a shift in focus as well towards the rarer genetic epilepsies that we mentioned earlier. A lot of people have started to recognize that while they are relatively rare, they can be very severe and, you know, somewhat devastating to often children. People have identified a real need to also focus on those rare epilepsies. And I think we'll hopefully see new treatment strategies come out for those as well. That's brilliant. I, but you know, I, I like is that because I had a conversation with somebody recently about about the research for the rare epilepsies, um, which is brilliant because we haven't had that much at all in history until sort of the past couple of years. But there are because so many of us and so many more of us experience temporal lobe epilepsy for instance that's not cool Mm -hmm. to research these days and so we need a bit of a balance i think of course we don't want people at all with rare um, diseases to feel left out and never should they be Mm -hmm. but also either should 
the majority. Being controversial again, I have to say that because I work with EpiCare, for, um, uh, which is about rare epilepsies, I find it, it's different for research itself. But as a fellow patient, we have so many similarities. Right. Um, those of us with, I have temporal lobe epilepsy, um, mm-hmm. I really get where many of these people are coming from with their seizures, like mm-hmm. the isolation they can feel, the frustration, the lack of concentration, the lack of quality right. of sleep, the side effects of the drugs, the fear from seizures, the fear of not knowing what's what's going to happen, the guilt that people feel, like worry about being a burden to their family and society. Um, then there's the you know, the lack of ability to potentially achieve what you thought you might have been able to. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, these things will vary, especially when we consider um, things like um, intellectual disability and other comorbidities. Mm-hmm. But there are far more similarities than there are differences. And although that means that research is significantly different and treatments can be different, mm-hmm. I think by kind of grouping together and saying, do you know what, let's approach this as one mm-hmm, rather mm-hmm. than kind of separating ourselves uh, I think could be quite powerful again those kind of um, really human aspects of how epilepsy is affecting people it, it's so important for us to to hear all of those things and of course I, I mean I guess the, the point that, that that I want to make is that whilst epilepsy can be caused by a whole number of different things and needs to be treated in different ways, you know, the end result is often very similar. It's a challenging question, to be honest, because as I say, if you have the different genetic epilepsies, you have different forms, I guess, of temporal lobe epilepsy or, or, or other epilepsies, you know, I'm probably neglecting various other important conditions. And each of these ones needs its own own research and it is hard to know where to focus. And, you know, this, this comes into the issue of funding, I guess, which, which we've spoken right. about before, that, you know, where the resources for funding are not necessarily sufficient to cover everything. Well, let's have all of our listeners and readers of your blog and of your guest blog on Epilepsy Sparks learn a bit more about what you, your colleagues, um, and Epilepsy in English are actually doing um, because we need to spread the word amongst people who don't have epilepsy because those who don't yeah. have epilepsy are going to be impacted, um, even if it's indirectly, by those of us affected by epilepsy. Um, it is, you know, gosh, we're getting on to social, social <laughs> things and economic things now, but they really are impacted by it. Um, it's one of the most expensive illnesses to mm-hmm. governments um, and the only way that that can really be changed is if we have us lot who are affected and those who care about us um, saying something about it and knowing what we're talking about I think that's a really important thing because over you know not just recent history but basically the history of us as a species it's been something people don't talk about and something people are ashamed of and sometimes people are unable to talk about it for different reasons you know and uh there was a study done a paper done by um rohit shankar and it was about actually people with 
uh, epilepsy and intellectual disabilities. Basically that people, when you go to conferences, only about 2% of the time is taken up talking about people with intellectual disabilities. Right. Um, they form such a huge percentage of people who've got epilepsy. Right. Now, why are they forgotten about? I, I can't say for sure. The first thing that comes into my mind is maybe they don't have so much of a voice. I don't know. But this right, is right. why I think even if it's not just for ourselves, we need to speak for other people who are not able to speak for themselves and, you know, and see that this is a really, really important issue. We need more funding from government so that we're treated with equality. Um, mm -hmm. as it seems equally important as people who are experiencing, say, Alzheimer's or another form of dementia um, or people with MS. And, and so the government needs to be funding research, say, with Epilepsy Research UK. Um, and we're, we're not ready to sort of just be left hanging in the gutter as, as, as <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, people have been for such a long time. Yeah, it's so true that all of those voices need to be heard because ultimately they are the reason why we do this work. And, you know, it, it's only by, I think, sharing those stories and sharing the progress that we can make towards helping those people, you know, that ultimately is showing the value of epilepsy research and of funding it. We talk about epilepsy being such an expensive condition to healthcare services. A lot of people with epilepsy um, will have to stay on drugs forever. You know, they will have yeah. to take their medication for a, a very long time. And, you know, I presume that can be very expensive. And let's say through funding research and investing the money in research now, let's say that we can find something which actually can treat the underlying causes of yeah. epilepsy as opposed to preventing seizures on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, not only does that have an enormous impact on the lives of, of those people directly, but you know, it would save a lot of money in the long run, I think. Exactly. And there was a, another study done recently in Australia about the cost of people who are having uncontrolled seizures in, mm -hmm. in the country to the economy. And oh my goodness, it came out something, it was in the billions. And they worked out that you could save something like a billion or two billion quid. I can't remember the details, but if you just um, increase the number of people with controlled seizures from 70 to 80%, something like that. Mm -hmm. So even for people who really don't literally care about people with epilepsy, you know, I don't care that you don't care about us <laughs> lot. That's fine. I, I really don't care. What you need to recognize is that, you know, at least if you just kind of pretend to care by investing in research and, and, and other people caring for us or working yeah. with us. Exactly. You can save money on taxes, mate. Today, I thank Gareth Morris for sharing with us his story to date and providing us with some insight into how he so values and is motivated by the input and feedback from people actually affected by epilepsy. For more information about Gareth and his cool work, you can find links in the description below. Also, do remember to check out epilepsyinenglish.ie, where you will find a guest blog from a certain person uh, where <laughs> I refer to Gareth as Morpheus from The Matrix. 
It'll make sense, trust me. Next week, I shall be talking to Dr. Gabrielle Legnani, the Principal Investigator, Senior Research Fellow and Biotechnologist at the UCL Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery London, and who is also the recent winner of the Hari Narayan Young Neuroscientist Award 2021 for his research into activity-dependent gene therapy for intractable epilepsy. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the program. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.